take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This morning I want to cover verses 16 down through the first part of verse 21 where the paragraph break is there. Lord willing, next week we will pick up at the second half of that verse. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 16. These are the words of God. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. In 2007, Nick Saban was hired to be the 27th football coach at the University of Alabama. I'm sure most of you are aware that he just retired after 17 years at Alabama. I think Blake was down in Auburn rolling Tumor's Corner <laughs> with all of the Auburn fans. Saban is considered by most to be the GOAT of college football coaches, the greatest of all times. He won 292 games as a coach. He won 11 Southeastern Conference championships. Two of those were at LSU, he led his teams to seven national championships. One of those was at LSU. He surpassed Bear Bryant in doing that. Also of Alabama, I'll just throw that in. Bama never had a Heisman Trophy winner before Saban got here. They've now had four. He coached from 1973, the year after Wendy was born. The year I was born. <laughs> He coached from 1973 to 2023, and he served as head coach from 1990 in Toledo with stops at Michigan State, LSU, the Miami Dolphins, and finally at Alabama. There was a little stint there after Toledo when he was with the Cleveland Browns. He was the defensive coordinator. Some of you thought Alabama football would die before Nick Saban retired. Many of you here are young enough to believe that Saban has just always been the coach at Alabama. He certainly was the only coach you've ever known. But suffice it to say, football has changed dramatically since Nick Saban's career as a football coach began, or at least a head football coach, back in 1990. Listen to this crazy stat that I dug up this week. 41 head coaching jobs in the SEC were vacated during Nick Saban's tenure at Alabama, not counting interim coaches. That is a crazy statistic. 41 coaching positions in the SEC alone were vacated during that time. What, what was it that made Nick Saban click? What made him so successful? while 41 other coaching positions were vacated during a time when college football has changed so drastically much. What made him successful? I mean, we've gone from three yards in a cloud of dust, that deep-rooted Alabama belief that you know defense wins championships, to, to the spread offense, throwing the ball everywhere all the time. College football has gone from it being illegal for you to buy a player a Big Mac to the NIL, name, image, likeness, when some college football players actually make more than their coaches make. Combine that with the transfer portal. Now you're recruiting not only high school players, but you're re-recruiting your own players every year. College football has changed. How did Saban continue to win? In a word, adaptation. Adaptation. He adapted to what the landscape of college football became. He changed. 
He stood behind a platform. He warned a crowd that NIL is bad. The transfer portal is bad. And he walked out the door and he used the NIL and the transfer portal to his own benefit. He changed. He was willing to change in ways he didn't want to change to win a game that he loved. Saban preferred the three yards in a cloud of dust. That's what he preferred. But he hired offensive coordinators that ran wide open offensive. Good leaders then understand the needs of the day, what is required at this very moment, and they adapt to that. What we are about to see here in this text from the Apostle Paul is very similar to what I have just described in Nick's Savior. Paul abhors self-promotion. Now that way he's somewhat unlike Nick Saban. <laughs> Paul abhors self-commendation. He, he loathes it, to put it mildly. More than Saban hates the spread. And relative to something far more serious than football, the gospel. Paul is about to employ a very boastful posture because this particular situation in Corinth calls for it, but not without an asterisk. More on that here in just a bit. Now let's remember where we are in this study. It's been a couple of weeks due to our wonderful winter meeting that we had last week with Brother Hank Atchison. Paul is writing to a troubled church, the most troubled church ever connected to Paul's ministry in Scripture. They have been torn apart from the seams by everything from division inside the body, this desire to be front and center, to tolerating teachers, false teachers from the outside, along with just a host of other serious issues. Well, we've made it to the section in 2 Corinthians where Paul is addressing those false teachers that have made their way into the church. Pseudo-apostles. And he is not pulling any punches. These men had come in, according to Paul, preaching another Jesus than the one that his, he and his apostolic team had proclaimed. Preaching a different spirit from the one they have received and even promoted a different gospel to the one they had originally accepted. And the church at Corinth was putting up with it. And so Paul pins these last several chapters. The church at Corinth was on dangerous ground. The, the ground was ready to crumble beneath their feet at any moment. And to make it worse, these false teachers were claiming to be the true apostles with special authority, superior knowledge, far more than Paul himself possessed. Their goal was to distance Paul from the congregation. Well, look at what Paul says to them in verse 13 of chapter 11. This is sharp. For such men are false apostles deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Is that, is that clear enough as to what Paul thinks about these pseudo-apostles, these false teachers that had weaseled their way into the church. I really don't know how it could be any clearer. Well, that just leads right into the text that we are looking at this morning. My title is Religious Oppression. And in this passage, Paul explains that a true Christian teacher will not oppress those under their leadership, but will lead them into true freedom found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's work through the text and then see what we can learn from it. Verse 16, Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Well, back in verse 1, Paul wrote, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And so here he essentially repeats 
that in so many words. He says, let no one think me foolish. Now, to be foolish is to have a wrong view of God, essentially. And, therefore, to have a wrong view of ourselves. Believers can act foolish at times. Unbelievers are fools. That's the difference. Look, Paul's desire is not that he would be perceived as just another teacher like the false teachers. No, they are foolish. Nevertheless, he's about to employ a tactic he doesn't like. He is about to use their own way of persuasion, boasting, because it's apparently all that some of the members of the church at Corinth will listen to. But get this, even using their standard, Paul is going to show himself to be superior to them, using their standard, because he has actually put his skin on the line for the gospel. We won't get to all of that today, but we will see that as the next several chapters unfold. If the Corinthian saints are to accept Paul then as a fool, he hopes that they will listen to him precisely that way. Two points. First, they had entertained the foolish false teachers. And so Paul hopes they'll listen to him too when he uses their way of persuasion. Secondly, Paul hates boasting. He knows that boasting is not a fruit of the Spirit. And so he wishes that these saints will realize that he's being foolish and know that he understands that before he ever gets into this. This is foolish boasting. This is not the real Paul. This is not the way he prefers to talk about himself and his ministry. He has been forced into, the, into this. Nevertheless, he has a point. He has a point in all of this. Gary Miller paraphrases Paul here using our language today. He says, quote, I know I'm being an idiot, but stick with me. End quote. That, that is what Paul is essentially saying. Now notice verse 17. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. All right, let's, let's take that last phrase first. Jesus never boasted. You say, but didn't, didn't Jesus come on a scene declaring Himself to be God? He is God. That's not boasting. That's a statement of fact. Jesus never boasted. As arrogant boasting is a fruit of the flesh, not of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is doing here is not what Jesus would do. He tells them that up front. And it bothers Paul. Because Paul's greatest desire is to imitate the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to boast. They've brought him to this. So Paul is admitting up front. He's making it crystal clear that this is not his desire, that is, that is to boast. But it's necessary to respond to these boastful false prophets who have hoodwinked the, te the, the, the people in the church at Corinth. Paul doesn't want to boast. He loathes it. He loathes self-commendation. But it's all that some of them will listen to. Alright, that's the last phrase. Now look at the first phrase. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence. Paul is saying, this is not the way Jesus talked. I'm going to do it anyway because y'all are forcing me to it. Paul is boasting, or he's about to. But even in this boasting, he's confident that he's telling the truth. He actually has a better resume than these false teachers. So using their own tactics, their faulty standards, Paul will be shown to be the true apostle, and he will expose them... As frauds, we might say, he's going to beat them at their own game. Their claims are false, while Paul quite literally bears the marks of a true apostle of Jesus Christ. 
He says in verse 18, Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. This many is the same many back in chapter 2 verse 17 who were peddlers of the Word of God. So Paul is taking direct aim at the pseudo-apostles, the, the intruders there in the church at Corinth. They boast in worldly ways according to worldly standards. They look the part of an orator. They speak with a silver tongue. They rake in big money. And then they judge themselves to be successful. Look, if you can judge yourself, you'll probably be okay. But we're not our own judge. God is our judge. Let me remind you, it was this standard of looking and sounding the part that made them claim a higher authority than Paul and a greater knowledge than Paul for that matter. And that worldly boasting had caught the attention of many believers in the church at Corinth. Nevertheless, Paul says, if they have claims, that's fine. I have greater claims, except Paul's claims are fact. And again, the, the difference between the apostles' claims and those of the false teachers is that Paul's were the true marks of Christian leadership, the evidence of a true apostle. To use our football illustration that we began with, Paul be, he prefers the grind of three yards and a cloud of dust. But he knows he can win running the showy spread offense if he's forced to. See, that, that's what he's saying here about these guys. Now, for those of you who excel at sarcasm, it's a good day for you to be here. For the record, I've won two first place trophies in sarcasm and a second place trophy after a playoff though. There's three people who know sarcasm here. Notice verse 19. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. This, <laughs> this is dripping with sarcasm. We are in chapter 11 of a heated Letter. Paul is not telling them they're wise. I assure you. Now for those of you struggling at this point, what is sarcasm? Because I know some of you are. Sarcasm is saying the opposite of what is true for an effect. I haven't actually won any trophies in sarcasm. Listen, Paul is not mocking them. That's not his point. But he does want to grab them by the arms and shake them, hoping that he will jar their minds and wake them up. They are not wise. They are actually quite unwise. Paul uses similar sarcastic language in his first canonical letter to this same church. Back in 1 Corinthians 4, here's what Paul says. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. See, just sarcastic. They are none of those things. Paul goes on to say, We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. You see the, the sarcasm that Paul can use. Listen, these saints at Corinth, they were immature. They were what we might call biblically illiterate in a lot of ways. Yet they believed themselves to be wise. But what you think isn't always a matter of fact. They believe themselves to be wise, and that beyond all others. And this lack of discernment, this lack of wisdom, has actually caused them to bear with fools. That's Paul's point. You're, you're not wise, you're unwise. And it's caused you to bear with fools. The NIV actually renders this, you gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. 
They put up with real fools, the false teachers, thinking that they themselves were elite in knowledge. That is, the, the Corinthian saints believed they were elite in knowledge, and it actually caused them to put up with false teachers. Listen, the fact that they put up with such heresies, things Paul calls in verse 4, another Jesus and a different gospel, that was proof enough that they did not know nearly what they thought they knew, what they claimed to know. D.A. Carson offers his own paraphrase of what Paul seems to be saying. Here's, here's how he words it. Quote, Paul is saying, in effect, you believe yourselves to be so wise, so mature, so discerning. You have been flattered into thinking you are a cut above other believers. But look at yourselves realistically. In your great wisdom, you have reduced yourselves to the point where you take for your leaders such fools as the false apostles. End quote. That, that is precisely what Paul is saying here. The Corinthian saints believed they were the elect of the elect, while Paul is concerned that they may not be elect at all. Guys, listen, when a, when a church or group of churches or an entire denomination for that matter tolerates and or supports heretical teaching, especially if it encourages their own self-glorification, something is deathly wrong. And Paul is well aware of that. Thus, his pointed language here. This is life or death. This is nothing to, to toy with. This is eternity. The truth is, they were not wise at all. This is sarcasm. And the fact that they tolerated such grossly false teaching just proved that Paul is right. And look at what all they were tolerating. This is, this is shocking. Verse 20. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. This is where I, my title come from. These saints were religiously oppressed. They were part of a cult, or at least headed that way. But I've witnessed spiritual oppression. Most of us have. Christians so scared to make a misstep that contradicted a, a man or a man's system that their faith was lived out in slavery rather than the joy that the gospel is supposed to produce. You know, we all have baggage. Our own religious scruples can sometimes cause us not to have joy. And we all have different scruples. But in Corinth, that's not what's happening. I'm not saying that wasn't occurring, but that's not what Paul is addressing here. It was the false teachers who were oppressing these saints. And the saints happily endured it. These pseudo-apostles had come into a place, into, into a congregation, into a church, a group of people freed from the yoke of sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached by the Apostle Paul and his apostolic team. And these false teachers had made slaves out of those people that God had freed. Listen, false teaching enslaves. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers freedom. Now, let me be crystal clear here. The gospel does not offer you freedom to sin all you want and please yourself. That's not what I mean. That's not what Scripture means. Freedom from sin is not a license to live it up. Understand though, religious oppression, as we see here in our text, does not ask people to live according to the dictates of the Word of God, but to live according to the dictates of the false teacher. Listen, your church leaders, your teachers are actually called to teach you Scripture and tell you to live according to that standard. All of us are to follow God's Word at all times. That is our goal. But oppression, 
specifically religious oppression, enslaves people to its leaders or to a system being run by those oppressive leaders. Christianity is not a religion of slavery to a system. We've been rescued from a system of works. The old covenant law. We've been rescued from a system. And now, this side of conversion, we are to be willing slaves of Jesus Christ. That's freedom. These intruders, these these pseudo-apostles, had made these saints slaves to them and their false teaching. You remember what Paul said, I know it's been a couple of years since we preached through the book of Galatians, but you remember what Paul said to those saints in the various churches there in Galatia when they had been convinced by false teachers that they were bound to keep the old covenant law? Here's what he writes in chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Listen to the richness in that. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Since submitting to the slavery of a false teacher actually distorts the gospel. This is not a freedom to sin. Again, I hope I don't have to keep saying that. If you've been with me for 25 years, you know I'm not preaching license here, right? This is not a freedom to sin, but a freedom to serve. A freedom from sin's grasp from sin's penalty, freedom from salvation through the Mosaic Code to real freedom offered freely through Jesus Christ. So the Christian faith, then, is a liberating religion, right? The only one that truly liberates as far as religions are concerned. And these false teachers in Corinth, as well as Galatia, had turned saints back into slaves. What do you think God thinks of those who enslave His people after He has set them free? That's a question we should ask. Not only had the false teachers enslaved them, but they had... They had devoured them, it says here in the text. They had taken their money. They had exploited them. They took advantage of these saints, preying on the Corinthians' desire for spiritual greatness. They promised it to them, and then they stuck their hand in their back pocket and ripped out their pocketbook. It says here that these pseudo-apostles had put on airs. That's a... That's a phrase we probably would have used a few decades ago. They'd put on airs. What, what he means here is that they're arrogant. They exalted themselves, most likely in the pulpit and outside the pulpit. In the words of John MacArthur, they were, quote, obsessed with their own importance, end quote. That's exactly what to put on airs means. They were obsessed with their own importance. Listen, false teachers are often the hero of their own sermons. I I don't like listening to a guy where every illustration of supposed faithfulness is the preacher himself. Man continues to bring up his own life as an example while just belittling anybody and everybody that disagrees with him from the pulpit. Look, when that happens, when the preacher's the hero of the sermon, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's one of the reasons that here we try to press so hard to just preach the Bible as it reads. Read the text, explain the text, apply the text, and then let us call on somebody to pray, walk out the door, and just go live the text. And notice this last thing Paul states these false teachers were doing. Or strikes you in the face. You know, in in most every culture on this planet, striking someone in the face is the ultimate insult. Now it's possible Paul means this 
literally. This goes on today. Even under the umbrella of Christendom, using that term very loosely, Todd Bentley, I hate his name. Bentley's okay, but he could have been something other than Todd. (laughs) Nevertheless, he is a charismatic showman. He is a false teacher. He is a fraud. And he can be seen on camera kicking people in the face and abusing them physically, claiming that this is the way God has called him to heal people. Look, if you don't believe me, just YouTube it. It's there. And people take it. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. If Brian calls somebody up here and kicks them in the face and y'all all take it, I'm gone. They've lost their mind. What's going on? Here's what's going on. They've bought in to the teachings of the cult. And so they stay. They are religiously oppressed. It's possible, I suppose, that Paul is speaking literally about them allowing people to strike them in the face. I think it's probably more likely that he is speaking metaphorically of the heavy-handedness of the the mental abuse the false teachers had brought on these saints, making them believe the only way to really be accepted by God is to follow them and their teaching and their system. I hope you can see just how that undermines the gospel, which teaches that the only way we are truly received by God is through Jesus. Jesus not some extra-biblical system forced into the white spaces between the text. Well, you know, the, the obvious question then is, why in the world did these people put up with such obvious spiritual abuse? Well, first... Let me say, spiritual abuse by supposedly Christian teachers is still very much alive and well right here in the home of the free and the land of the brave. In fact, spiritual abuse is not difficult to exercise in a society where people are already looking to be the greatest. People longing for something more than the completeness that we have in Christ. More on that here in a second. Listen, some of you may have been affected by this. I mean, we've all got various backgrounds. Some maybe more than you realize. Children of God are often willing to be abused spiritually if they are promised greatness and elite status above the rest of the family. Maybe they can be the favorite son. That elite status may be here on earth in in this life through some type of higher life theology, some ecstatic emotional experience, and so they will accept being kicked in the face every once in a while. Literally. Or perhaps such an elite status promised by false teachers may be later in heaven through some special elevated eternal position over the rest of the blood-bought children of God who just get to heaven by the skin of their teeth. Either way, promise greatness and immature children will endure a lot to get there. A preacher friend said to me recently, speaking of an oppressive teacher and his followers, here's what he said. He said, I guess as long as they still say you're the best thing God's got going, they don't mind the occasional slap. That's precisely what's going on here in Corinth. At the hands of these false apostles, these religious intruders, they were promising greatness and they were just ripping them apart at the seams, taking everything that they had. This is the way of false teachers. But Paul had not abused these saints. Notice our last verse, verse 21. To my shame, again, this is, this is sarcastic. 
To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Again, dripping with sarcasm. The false teachers had labeled Paul as a weak man. He had weak teaching. He had weak speech. He had a weak physical presence. And many of the Corinthian saints had bought into it. That is, that is clear. And so here, Paul embraces that weakness. But he twists it. Right? He uses it to his advantage. Paul says that he and his apostolic team were too weak to spiritually oppress these people. In other words, if the actions of the false teachers that had exploited them is what strong looks like, Paul said, I'll just, I'll just be happy to be weak. We're too weak to do that. Listen, Paul's goal for these saints was to build them up in the faith. To enable them through, through growth in the truth to serve God better in this life. Paul did not tear them down for his own benefit. Paul tore himself down for their benefit. John MacArthur again writes, quote, His weakness in not enslaving, exploiting, entrapping, dominating, and humiliating the Corinthians proved to be the strength and proof of his genuineness as an apostle and the evidence of his love for them, end quote. And yet, they didn't see it. It's mind-blowing. You see, Paul is using their argumentation method, that of the false teacher, he's using it against them. I don't know if you've caught it or not, but he's winning. But one thing Paul is doing is he's explaining himself as he goes. I mean, you, you can see his commentary in the text of what he means. When he says he's weak, he says, yeah, I'm weak, I'm too weak to steal from you. He explains what he's doing as he goes. In order to separate himself from the false teachers and their ulterior, their ulterior motives. Paul is using the false teachers' method against them. And Nick Saban chose to play a style of football he did not really love. To use a system that he didn't like to his advantage. A system he thought was actually bad for college football. Paul takes self-boasting being done by the pseudo-apostles, which he hates. And he beats them at their own game. That's what's going on here. We see that unfold a little bit today. We'll see it unfold a whole lot more as we work through the text. All right, let me make a few applications and we'll call it, we'll call it a day. First, false teachers are just a reality that we need to accept. It's not comfortable. Many in the religious world today, under the, under the guise of Christianity, just don't even want to talk about false teachers. But they are real. The Bible repeatedly warns against false teachers. Jesus Himself warned, quote, Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, or as Paul said, following that supposed angel of light, right? Like a false prophet's not going to walk in here and say, Hey, I'm a false prophet. Will you let me speak? No, of course not. They're going to come in sheep's clothing. But Jesus says inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Decades later, maybe 60 plus years later, the Apostle John in 1 John 4 warned his readers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. Paul in his letter to the saints in Thessalonica writes this, quote, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. <laughs> you see, don't, don't just accept a man's word for it. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. By the way, talk about a text that's been ripped kicking and screaming out of context. That is in, in, in reference here to false teaching and prophecies. 
But false teachers have always been a problem throughout biblical history in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, from the first century until now. And every church is susceptible to false teachers if we are on guard. Peter even references them in 2 Peter. We saw that last weekend. 2 Peter 2.1, but false teachers also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter expected it. Look, Satan has always had emissaries. They come in stealthily disguised as God's servants. And false teachers, they move away from the truth, away from the Word of God to the philosophies of men. So if we are to remain faithful, if we are to remain orthodox as a church, as individuals, we must know the Bible. We must retain teachers and elders who accurately teach it to us. That brings me to point number two. Things that, according to this text, a church leader cannot be. We'll quickly run through this. First, a church leader cannot be boastful or arrogant. He must understand that he is not perfect and he does not know it all. He must understand that he is a sinner. That he, like everybody else, is saved by God's Grace, not by merit. He was purchased off the slave market through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A church leader who believes himself to be a cut above everybody else is not fit to be a church leader. Secondly, a church leader cannot be exploitive. In other words, he can't be merely seeking to separate people from their money so he can fleece his own pockets and get himself a nice new jet to add to the seven others that he already has. A church leader cannot be abusive. Or the word that we've been using today in this sermon, oppressive. I listened to a sermon recently from a Baptist preacher of all things a while back, telling his people they were bound to follow him because he's the man God sent to them with God's message for them. I call that the man of God syndrome. And it's a sickness. It's not a good thing. Listen, the duty of a church leader is clear in Scripture. The duty of a church leader is to preach the Bible accurately to the people. That's what Paul told Timothy to do. Preach the Word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the Scripture is sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's that's why. As long as we accurately do that here, elders, teachers, whatever, you should follow. Because those aren't our instructions. Those are God's instructions. But it doesn't give anybody the right to be a dictator, as is so often seen in churches today. That means then a church leader cannot be a bully. That's certainly true of all Christians, but the context here in 2 Corinthians 11 is that of church leaders. Listen to me, bullies cannot be church leaders. It is a mistake For a church to put a bully in church leadership, the church will split. Bullies need to be humbled, not promoted. Now that said, don't be shocked if a church leader has a very firm conversation with you sometimes and they actually are doing what they should do. Sometimes a cancer must be removed from someone's life or even a church. That's what Paul's doing here. I mean, these are strong words that Paul is is writing with. He He is surgically removing cancer from this congregation. And folks, when you have something removed surgically, it's probably going to leave a scar. It's probably going to hurt for a while. 
But sin has got to be removed. Third point of application. The gospel is worth defending. The gospel is worth defending. Look, Paul was willing to suffer a lot. We're going to see that as we continue to work through this book. He's patient. Paul is not, you know, quick-tempered. He's very patient. But when justification by faith alone is at stake, the gospel, we must speak loudly. Guys, listen, many doctrines, many teachings, many practices confuse the gospel and we often overlook those things without a second thought. Listen, we, we, got, we must always, when we introduce something to the church, I don't mean a doctrinal change or anything like that. I just mean like a change of order. We're going to do something differently. Somebody needs to ask the question as to whether it's going to confuse the gospel or not. Let me give you an example. And I'm not trying to harp on a pet peeve, but this is just an example that I think is worthy. When churches began hanging a list of extra-biblical rules on the wall behind the pulpit. That's all over the place. Somebody should have spoken up and asked, what are the lost people going to think when they read those rules? How is the gospel message affected by rules that are not mandated in Scripture? Rules that would exclude the apostles, many believers throughout church history, and even Jesus Himself. Listen, let's be honest. When you preach the gospel of justification by faith alone, but you also have a list of rules hanging on the church wall, lost people leave confused at best. Somebody should have asked. Listen, the gospel is our primary message. We can debate and bicker over all kinds of other things, but the gospel is our primary message, and we must keep it pure at all costs. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. And when the lost leave a worship service here, if they don't take one other thing away, they need to say, hey, those people believe that they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Fourth, and I want to address this really quickly, because this was going on here in Corinth. Don't come to church to feel complete through an experience. There's little doubt that that's going on with the false teachers. Again, we're going to see that. They, they, were, they were pushing an emotion-based experience. If that's what you desire, you will never, ever find completeness. The well is always going to be dry. Completeness is found in one place. One place. The cross of Jesus. That is it. Our worth before God is rooted in what Christ has done. Once we realize that, no experience can top it. Now let me be clear. I do not mean to say that you're not sometimes moved by a prayer or convicted by a song, cut by a sermon. I hope those things do happen. I pray for those things to happen. But I'm talking about a, an emotion-filled worship experience. We don't offer that here. We have something a lot better than that. Something far more lasting. A gospel message that can justify you before the holy and righteous God of heaven. Make you complete in God's eyes. Make you, the sinner that you naturally are, acceptable to God. There's no experience that can top that. There's no experience that can add to that. That second part needs to be preached along with the first part. Alright, let me close with this. We must not focus on ourselves and our own greatness. That was the problem with the false teachers and that was a problem with many in the church at Corinth. 
That's why they were following these false teachers. Such a focus of our own worth will always lead us away from a God-centered worship. It has to. Here's what Calvin wrote, and this, this quote is 400 years old, so I'm sorry if you don't get it all. I posted it on Facebook the other day. It's rich. Here's what he wrote, quote, Such dwelling on our excellence is always dangerous. For like a man entering a labyrinth, that's, that's a maze, we are soon hemmed in by it. So he says we're hemmed in by this, these thoughts of our own excellence. We're, we are soon hemmed in by it and become too aware of our gifts and too ignorant of ourselves. End quote. That's heavy. When we start thinking of our own greatness, we forget who we really are. That's what Calvin say. Amen. Guys, listen, Christianity focuses on Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. His perfect life. His complete obedience to the Father for us. Christianity is Christ-centered. And if that is true, and it is, absolutely, then our preaching ultimately should be Christ-centered. The problem in Corinth is that the preaching of these false teachers was everything but Christ-centered. It focused on their own greatness. They were, we've used this term several times, they were triumphalists. In other words, they were, they were seeking to be above everybody else. They said they were, and they hoodwinked many in the church to believe that they could be too. If we preach ourselves and our tribe as superior to the rest of God's blood-bought family, we simply are not preaching the message Paul preached. And all the New Testament writers. And even that of our Lord. Because our worth is found in Christ alone. We need to learn from this text. We need to be better than these false teachers. We need to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Apostle Paul who wrote back in chapter 4, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Stand with me, if you will. Brother Carl, will you dismiss us please, sir?